Arsenal for Democracy is available twice a week. There's a free episode at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple or Stitcher each weekend and a midweek bonus episode at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy, available for $5 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. This man is my land. California. New York Island. The Redwood Forest. The Gulf Stream waters. This land is made for you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 373, recorded on May 11th, 2021. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line from Idaho, as always, is Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Bill. On this week's bonus episode, we're talking about a 2005 documentary, which I think we highly recommend, called Sir No Sir, which I watched in April 2018 and which Rachel watched this week. We had never actually done an episode on it, but I do talk about it fairly frequently outside of this show, so I thought it would make for a good bonus episode. Uh, This is a documentary that was directed by David Zeger about U.S. military personnel who resisted the Vietnam War from the inside. Zeger himself had organized dissident GIs during the war. The documentary was generally received quite positively, despite or perhaps because of its release a couple years into the Iraq War, especially because it was regarded as being a story of courage, not so much a tale of despair. So there was a bunch of things that... um, Rachel and I wanted to note from this documentary. Obviously, I guess if you don't want us to spoil a documentary from 2005, then go watch it without us describing it. But I don't know if you can spoil a documentary. Um, So we're just going to talk about some of the beats that we thought were particularly interesting. Now, just for overall context, uh, there is a long, interesting section in this documentary on the public memory myth and erasure in the 1980s to present of the vociferous anti-war movement inside the U.S. military and among veterans of the Vietnam War at the time, even though when it was happening, it was actually widely covered in the media. Um, And to give you a sense of the scale of how much resistance we're talking about, by the Pentagon's own admission, there were over 500,000, quote, incidents of desertion, end quote, during the Vietnam War. Uh, So let's talk about some of these specific examples. So one thing that was considered to be part of a hearts and minds type campaign in South Vietnam was having the army doctors in the U.S. Army teach dermatology to special forces so that they could provide sort of on-site skin treatments to the South Vietnamese population. And this was supposed to win people over. Uh, But one of the young doctors thought that it was unethical to bomb the South Vietnamese people and then treat them. So he stopped teaching. And for doing so, he received three years in prison. In another incident, uh, which was quite famous, this was called the Presidio Mutiny, a number of troops from various branches deserted publicly in San Francisco. They called the press and they chained themselves together and to clergy members at a church, and the military jailed them in the Presidio Stockade. One of their uh, sort of ironic slogans was, Obedience to the law is freedom. Um, now, this wasn't the only significant west coast action by any means uh by mutineers and rachel i know you wanted to talk about uh susan schnall 
Yeah, uh, Susan Schnall was a Navy nurse, and she heard about the U.S. dropping leaflets across Vietnam, urging people to defect to South Vietnam's cause. So she decided that turnabout was fair play, and so she organized a small private plane to fly over U.S. military bases and drop leaflets urging active GIs to join the protests against the war. And she actually talks about how in the back of her mind, she was wondering, are we going to get shot down over this Air Force base? Um, but it, th- her efforts did work and were pretty convincing. And so she was court-martialed for doing that. And she also argued that if General Westmoreland was allowed to make speeches in uniform in favor of the war, she could make a speech in uniform against the war. And so the Navy said that um, at her court-martial that she was making a political statement in uniform was, which was against their code of conduct. Yeah, and she was based in uh, Oakland, and so the military bases that she was targeting were all the ones around the San Francisco Bay area uh, with this plane drop. Now, unsurprisingly, in this documentary, there's a lot of really gruesome stories from combat because a lot of the resistance guys had a sort of conversion experience after some sort of brutal close quarters encounter. Um, But again, uh, the the main sort of thrust of this documentary isn't really one of sort of depress, depression and despair, but more about courage and people trying to find common humanity. So one of the guys uh, had been in a close quarters situation with a North Vietnamese soldier or, you know, I don't remember because it's been a couple of years since I watched this. It may have been a Viet Cong person, but I think it was North Vietnamese or, he, or at least he believed that it was. And he, in self-defense killed this soldier from North Vietnam or affiliated to North Vietnam. But he felt like, yes, he had killed him in self-defense, but why was he even there? Why was he fighting in this war? And now this guy, you know, yes, that guy would have probably killed him if given the opportunity, but he's just doing his job and trying to liberate his country. And what does it all mean? It's so pointless. So he concluded that becoming an internal resistance person inside the U.S. military to try to sabotage the U.S. war effort in Vietnam and help North Vietnam to win the war was the only way that he could make this guy's death that he had caused in self-defense matter in some way. Um, And this was sort of a common story, as I said, of these, you know, close quarters encounters that really disenchanted and turned a lot of the service members against the war, even if they had been, you know, maybe ambivalent about it beforehand. This didn't just affect things on the front lines. It also filtered back as they would be rotated back into the United States um, or rotated to various bases and interacting with other people who hadn't been on the front lines yet. Uh, And so guys started coming back from tours of duty and telling the new guys, whether they were new recruits or new draftees, Uh, who were preparing to ship out of of the U.S. about what the missions actually were like. And this was summarized in the documentary as basically go out on an early morning ambush patrol, kill 50 people, count the bodies until you've hit your 50 quota. And in order to meet that quota, generally that meant killing large numbers of women and children. And needless to say, this did not sit very well with these human beings who had been sent often against their will as as conscripted draftees uh, over there. And so they began kind of spreading this around to the people who were about to be sent over saying, look, like you have to do something, you have to resist this by any means, you have to resist these illegal orders uh, and, and stop the killing. 
Um, and this led to a whole bunch of different groups and organizations within the U.S. military at the time. Obviously, like we know, you know, famously uh, about some of the like veterans groups like John Kerry was involved with. But it's important to emphasize there were a lot of active duty personnel who had not left the military yet who were still continuing these resistance efforts. And these groups, according to the documentary, included the American Servicemen's Union, the Movement for a Democratic Military, the Black Liberation Front of the Armed Forces, the Black Brothers Union, Concerned Officers Movement, and GIs United Against the War. Now, we're going to talk in a bit about some of the um, sort of uh, black organizations in particular, um, but in terms of just ordinary GIs of whatever race, uh, and in many cases, they would be, you know, uh, guys that white guys from middle America who hadn't had a whole lot of exposure to, you know, the radical ideas that were percolating through the black community. Uh, they also started getting involved in some of these radical politics. And Rachel, I know there was a local connection that you wanted to talk about from this documentary. Yeah. Um, so GI coffee houses located in towns near military bases uh, became centers for organizing GIs. And this is where the above-mentioned storytelling to new recruits, new draftees happened, as well as di distribution of anti-war newspapers. Um, so uh, resistance uh, uh, movement members started using military resources on base to print underground newspapers against the war. Um, and the pro-war officers would make such a big stink out of it um, and just really flip out so hard that everybody uh, would start reading it just to piss off the officers. So there was a huge proliferation of these um, underground newspapers. I think the documentary said there were about 300 at least. Um, so uh, reactionary pro-war mobs began attacking and firebombing these coffeehouses and, and other buildings um, at night. And also police would conduct ra conduct raids and flip out over iconography that was anti-patriotic or pro-black. Um, they also uh, charged the owners of these coffee houses for being a public nuisance because they were speaking out against the war. Um, so one of these GI coffee houses in Idaho was called the Covered Wagon Coffee House. And um, it opened in early 1971 in a converted theater in Mountain Home, Idaho, near the Mountain Home Air Force Base. Uh, GIs from the base began publishing an underground newspaper called The Helping Hand. Um, Mountain Home is incredibly rural, and the town's pro-military establishment was hostile to the idea of GIs organizing against the war, and they waged a campaign against the coffee house. The local newspaper published letters urging physical attacks on the wagon and its members, and on November 21st, 1971, the coffee house was actually firebombed and burned to the ground by unknown arsonists. Um, this attack generated national media coverage, including an appeal for support published in the New York Review of Books and signed by a number of prominent people. But the cause of the fire was never investigated by the town's authorities. While the coffee house was open, it helped GIs organize demonstrations, pass out leaflets, and put out the newspaper. And it hosted speeches by many well-known anti-war activists, including the FTA show Howard Zinn, Dick Gregory, and Country Joe McDonald. The Helping Hand ceased publication and the coffee house closed in 1974. Um, so speaking of that FTA show, um, FTA was a slogan that the military used. Um, it stood for fun, travel, and adventure. And kind of as a counter to that, um, some of these anti-war uh, movement members started uh, using that FTA slogan to mean 
free or the army. And uh, actually, Jane Fonda, who is pretty well known for being an anti-Vietnam War War activist, um, participated in an FTA tour, um, which was kind of a counter to Bob Hope's pro-war USO tours. So she would go and visit um, bases and um, perform for the troops there and just kind of really um, lent her support to the anti-war movement, to the troops that were actually out overseas. She was interviewed in this documentary, and there were also some clips from her time during the war, speaking very eloquently on U.S. foreign policy and underscoring that she was just there to represent the already anti-war troops, not to change their minds. I think it was very important to her that she uh, vocally uh, support the anti-war movement and really lend that moral support to the troops. Some of these resistance people, as we've talked about, were part of larger groups, and that really helped them kind of build collective action and things like that. But a lot of this resistance was happening at really the individual level, which could be a profoundly sort of isolating experience and, you know, could could really lead people to feel this sort of sense of anger and despair without being sure what to do with that. Um, and until you found a, a larger sort of group of people who could help you, uh, that was a really difficult thing to do. And a lot of people really, you know, put everything on the line to show that kind of courage uh, and bravery uh, to recognize their common humanity and resist these sort of uh, orders. So one of the guys covered in the documentary, he began refusing minor orders at the front lines in Vietnam, but he didn't know there was a broader resistance movement. And uh, Major told him that he was facing 20 to life if he was court-martialed for this, and he sent him off to a company uh, psychologist uh, who was supposed to, you know, figure out if he was crazy, and that's why he was resisting orders and basically try to talk him out of it. And instead, the psychologist showed him a uh, full-page New York Times ad of 100 of more than 100 resistors who had signed their names against the wars. And these were all active duty or recently uh, retired veterans uh, who were, were or had been serving in the war. And I think that really kind of bolstered this guy's sense that like, hey, I'm not alone. I, I am doing the right thing here. I'm not crazy. Now, as I said earlier, there, there was a lot of uh, black power and black liberation ideology stuff that was a part of this as well, um, especially among drafted black troops. Um, and of course, it spread beyond their ranks as well. Uh, and there's a good section in the documentary about that. And particularly noting that prior to the Vietnam War, while there was obviously a lot of stuff happening in terms of the civil rights movement and things like that, that was, you know, engaging the black community across the United States, there was still a lot of kind of isolation between many of the sort of sub-communities in the United States, right? People, apart from like the top leadership people and the people who were really involved in some of these national organizations, you, you didn't have a huge amount of traveling back and forth going on between some of these cities uh, or some of the more rural areas. Obviously, there were always some level of exchanges. But one thing that really happens by drafting or, you know, recruiting huge numbers of black troops from all over the country uh, and then, you know, kind of throwing them in this melting pot within the military was that you had these different ideas and sort of localized kind of uh, ideologies, idiosyncratic, you know, versions of these things getting mixed together, uh, sharing and exchanging these ideas, things like that. And that really kind of helped uh, generate uh, 
well, not really generate, but bolster a lot of the impulsive resistance against the war that was happening among the black troops. Um, and there was also another factor uh, in this which had to do with stuff that wasn't happening in Vietnam, which is that some black troops became adamantly opposed to the Vietnam War after seeing either in person or on film reels uh, U.S. troops in the same uniforms being deployed in American cities against civilian black protesters in 1968. They felt kind of like the famous Muhammad Ali quote that got him in so much trouble, uh, you know, that there was a commonality with the Vietnamese people, right? That they, why were we being sent to fight them? Nobody in Vietnam had ever done anything to them, but you know who had? The U.S. government and the U.S. military. And that if they were getting this response in U.S. cities for protesting for their own basic rights, that probably the Vietnamese people who were resisting the U.S. military presence had similar objections to the U.S. Uh, and that really strengthened a lot of the black troop resistance uh, as well. Um, another sort of event that happened that reinforced a lot of this was not in relation to civil rights movement stuff or the um, race riots that were happening, uh, but rather at the Democratic National Convention. Uh, the army sent Fort Hood troops to Chicago to help with riot control at the DNC, and they became concerned enough at the last minute to not actually send them into the streets because they were worried that, unlike the police, that the troops, who were, again, some combination of volunteers and drafted conscripts, might actually switch sides and back the protesters. Um, and that is also raised in the documentary to illustrate the sort of pervasive level of uh, resistance happening inside the military and the military's concern about how widespread that was, that they just simply did not trust them at certain points uh, anymore to remain uh, loyal to the cause, so to speak. Um, another thing that happened later in the war was that after Nixon's quote-unquote Vietnamization policy began, uh, the U.S. initially insisted that it was no longer sending U.S. troops into offensive combat situations on the ground in C South Vietnam. And I think a lot of Americans probably believed that. Uh, but as it turned out, that was, at least initially, uh, a lie. And U.S. frontline troops were still being sent in. And they got so frustrated by this situation that they started broadcasting pirate radio messages uh, and circulating petitions demanding immediate evacuation. Uh, they felt they were not being pulled out fast enough and that they were, you know, that the public was being lied to. Um, another thing that happened as people, you know, got just completely frustrated with endless orders to commit war crimes, endless orders to go on suicide missions that were completely pointless, especially after it was becoming clear that the U.S. was definitively losing the war and that all of this was just sort of a holding action until they finally pulled out. People were just fed up with it. And the film discusses a lot of fragging incidents and the leadership's growing concern with the number of murders and attempted murders at the front lines of those sort of lower level and mid-level officers uh, by their own troops uh, who just were not having it. Um, they don't really address in the movie uh, what the final count of assassinations of officers was. Um, and I don't know if there's any records of that because in many cases it was probably covered up. Um, but I did, I did kind of wonder about that as I was watching it. Um, now, Rachel, I know you had some other uh, points you wanted to talk about in relation to this as well. Yeah, the documentary highlighted a trial um, that came about after a, a fragging incident. Um, so uh, uh, 
the the website for this documentary, DisplacedFilms.com, um, also provides a lot of reading material and resources related to um, the subject. And uh, they actually had an excerpt from a, a newspaper at the time called About Face um, detailing this incident. On March 15, 1971, a fragmentation grenade exploded in an officer's barracks in an Army artillery unit in Vietnam, killing two lieutenants and wounding a third. Captain Rigby and First Sergeant Willie, who were to have slept in those barracks, arrived on the scene and decided they were the real intended victims. Billy Dean Smith, a black private from Watts, California, was charged with the fraggings and attempted murders of Rigby and Willie, and he was actually held in solitary confinement for 16 months at Fort Ord, California. Um, and there were interviews with his uh, family members and his um, defense team detailing how the solitary confinement for 16 months really traumatized him and basically broke his brain. Um, so the trial was ha included a lot of really shaky evidence. Um, and I found another article from historynet.com detailing the, the trial. Due to the racial overtones, the case received international attention, and the trial was moved from Vietnam to Fort Ord, California. The prosecution produced a grenade pin it said was found in Smith's pocket shortly after the attack, though the defense argued the pin had been planted on Smith by investigators. The only reason Smith had been fingered, the defense argued, was that he had made anti-war statements before the murders. Black Scholar magazine suggested he'd been deemed the, quote, logical guilty party, unquote, because he was, quote, a black GI with a bad attitude, unquote. In the end, a court-martial panel of seven officers found him not guilty. And part of that prosecution um, related to the grenade pin was they were trying to, like, forensically um, tie the, grenade, the pin that supposedly was in the possession of Smith to the grenade that was involved in the attack. And there just isn't really a way to tie a grenade pin to a particular grenade. Um, so they were using really faulty faux scientific evidence to uh, convict Smith. But it, in the end, he uh, was uh, exonerated. So a few other anecdotes here. Um, there was one in particular that I thought was definitely quite relevant to the modern, uh, you know, present day 21st century focus in the U.S. Armed Forces on aerial bombardments, drone strikes, things like that. And this sort of layer of remove, obviously, we know of various war crimes committed on the ground in the recent wars, uh, but many of them have been conducted from the air. And interestingly, during the Vietnam War, as uh, Rachel and I were talking about off air before we started, of course, most of the ground operations were happening in South Vietnam, and most of the aerial war was happening, uh, apart from the, you know, uh, defoliation stuff and the uh, cluster bombing and things like that all across South Vietnam and uh, the neighboring countries. A lot of the air war was happening over North Vietnam, and they were just carpet bombing targets and uh, things like that. And the Air Force had units that were uh, flying electronic eavesdropping planes for signals intelligence, and they were flying all, you know, over North Vietnam all the time uh, with these counterintelligence guys listening in on North Vietnamese radio assessments. Uh, and their job officially was that they were supposed to be listening in to hear basically the reports of the damage inflicted by the U.S. carpet bombing raids. Uh, and, you know, basically, okay, this is what the enemy is saying internally uh, about the outcome of the bombs that our other, you know, fellow planes have just dropped. Um, but these counterintelligence uh, Americans 
were listening in on what the North Vietnamese were saying, and uh, that actually was giving them a more raw and real account of what was happening firsthand with no filtering. Um, these were, you know, the moment-by-moment frontline reports of what was going on uh, without any sort of filtering through propaganda or PR or official government statements. And what became very apparent to the counterintelligence people listening in for signals intelligence was that the targets were civilian. Uh, they were not military targets, uh, the, and they weren't even necessarily infrastructure targets. They were civilian targets that were killing lots of civilians, and they realized that the United States was lying. So some of these counterintelligence um, Air Force members began leaking reports uh, to the wider world to basically make clear what was actually happening in these North Vietnamese bombing runs that the U.S. was conducting constantly. Uh, in another anecdote, uh, in a Navy ship, there were 1,200 service members uh, who were about to be shipped out to Vietnam from the U.S. West Coast, and they signed a petition demanding that their ship not be deployed to Vietnam. Uh, other anti-war organizer troops, including Navy officers, began organizing plebiscites with stay-or-go ballots for ships, and then they uh, expanded voting participation to the wider public in San Diego, which was not necessarily always receptive to this, but the idea was to spread the word and kind of, you know, go, go to this audience that was potentially not as favorable toward these resistance movements and say, look, not everyone is on board with this, and a lot of us are really troubled by the idea of being uh, sent out there. Rachel, I, I see you had a link here about that. Yeah, uh, Stanford uh, University actually has an exhibit um, called The Connie Vote, the USS Constellation and the Peace Movement in San Diego. And it's a collection of photographs um, of the of the peace movement in San Diego. There's a really uh, cool T-shirt there uh, that they designed. And in the documentary, they also uh, uh, rented a private plane and they actually um, like towed a streamer that said, uh, Connie votes stay. Um, so there was a lot of public outreach going on at that time. And they even went to like, um, grocery stores and stuff to talk to the, to the people in San Diego, um, about the vote and to kind of educate them about the anti-war movement. There's definitely some stuff in the documentary where like some of the people at the time really thought that this was maybe going to be the precipice of revolution or something, right? You know, like the German or Russian uh, naval mutinies and things like that. And that really didn't materialize. But it is interesting to see the sort of widespread and highly visible nature of this stuff that has essentially been buried from the public memory and the official narratives, even though it was widely happening out in the open, highly visibly, uh, and that you had all these contemporary news reports about it. I thought there was a great quote from near the end of the movie from one of the resistors. Uh, and he says, and then you think about it and you think, God damn, did I do that? And I just thought that kind of spoke to this thing of like people's individual courage. And yes, there was a lot of collective action, which was hugely helpful and a lot more powerful than the individual acts. But just that there were a lot of people who did a lot of very brave things, looking at their own conscience and thinking, I can't be a part of this. I have to do something about it. And, you know, really stepping up and you have to wonder, you know, <laughs> would you do that in a similar situation? Do you know people who could be persuaded to do that, etc.? Um, another thing that I wanted to talk about before we close out on this uh, is just that I had been told about this documentary after I had been discussing some stories I read a few years back in an anarchist book that I guess was probably published about 30 years ago. 
which was about workplace sabotage, large and small. I mean, a lot of the chapters are about things like, you know, stealing staples and paper clips or whatever at your office. But they also had a whole section on military sabotage. Uh, and there was a publication, uh, you know, Rachel mentioned all the different newsletters. There was a publication that was called RITA, Resistance Inside the Army. Uh, this was partly connected uh, through Jean-Paul Sartre. Uh, he operated a P.O. box in Paris specifically designated to receive smuggled letters from resistance inside the army members in Vietnam to their comrades stationed in Paris. And in their newsletter, one incident they highlight was that 1.8 million gallons of airplane fuel at a supply base in Vietnam blew up at one point. And the military officially said this was an act of enemy sabotage resulting from careless and drug-addled sentries not keeping watch. Uh, but there were U uh, zero U.S. casualties in the incident and zero reported contact with the enemy before or after the explosion. Now, maybe this was just a freak accident, but again, the official account was that this was enemy action, uh, which suggested to and, and led to the attribution by the RITA newsletter uh, that it was internal sabotage. Um, now, there were some other, other anecdotes from that particular book, and I just wanted to read one of them uh, before we get ready to wrap up here. Uh, so this is a first-person narrative. My job description was to walk to the top of a hill and dig a hole. Through the night, I would sit in that hole or sleep by it. I would get up at dawn and walk to another hill and dig another hole. If I ever saw anybody who didn't dress like me, I was supposed to kill him. As with most of my peers, sabotage was part of my daily routine. Some of this sabotage was malicious, much of it to relieve the tedium of life on the battlefield, or to ameliorate the effects of drudgery, exposure, and exhaustion. Some of it was done for profit, some of it was homicidal. When I first got there, I threw away a lot of food, ammo, and explosive devices because I was so overburdened with equipment, I couldn't carry it all. I would dismantle incendiary devices to use the plastic C4 explosive as a source of heat to stay warm, or as a way to cook food. When I was on guard duty, out of boredom, I dismantled 50 caliber tracer shells to make fireworks. We just destroyed stuff out of boredom. I put a huge rock in a friend's pack when he wasn't looking so he would strain himself to delirium on the march just so we could laugh. When we were sent out at night to pull an ambush, we found a place to hide instead so we could sleep. I fell asleep on guard duty because I was too tired to stay awake, but I got caught for that. I refused to take anti-malaria pills in the hopes I would get malaria and be evacuated out of the bush. I jogged in place with a full pack in noonday sun in a brush fire in an attempt to get heat prostration. I disobeyed direct orders from an officer on the battlefield. I challenged my platoon sergeant to a fight. I was caught smoking pot. I allowed my weapon to become rusty and caked with mud, gambled when I was supposed to clean my weapon, and slept when I was supposed to be packing up my gear. And when I walked point... I went really fast so the company would get hot and tired and pissed off. Another quote, I think it's, it's a different account, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I became involved with radical politics. I admired people like Ho Chi Minh, Malcolm X, Huey Newton, and Karl Marx and put up pictures of them in my locker on the base. We had an inspection and everyone had all of their clothing laid out on their beds. I had given my uniform away, so I had none. When the inspecting officers came to me, I opened my locker and they saw all of these photographs. Everyone went totally bananas. They stopped the inspection with me. They didn't look at any more people, beds, lockers, or anything. That afternoon, I had liberty, and when I came back, I found out that everyone who was associated me with was being interrogated to find out if I was trying to convert them to communism. So I thought those were two interesting uh, stories there. 
so Rachel, uh, I wanted to get your sort of closing thoughts. Uh, you've watched the documentary much more recently than I did, but like this documentary really has stuck in my head pretty consistently since I watched it in 2018. Um, I definitely do recommend it to people. I mean, we've definitely hit a lot of the key beats, but you're really going to want to watch this for yourselves, I think. Yeah, it's it's very moving. Um, just the accounts of solidarity. Uh, I always get a bit uh, misty-eyed whenever I see um, big movements uh, organizing for change. Um, and this was no exception. Um, and I, I think it's really interesting that it came out a couple years into the Iraq war, because I think that really highlights the differences between those two wars. Um, the, the Vietnam, the Vietnam, uh, war involved a lot of draftees, a lot of conscripts, and they really didn't want to be there in a way that, uh, a volunteer army, um, just doesn't have the same makeup of, of people. Um, and so I think that really shows, how different the the two armed forces are in these two conflicts. And also in the Iraq war, we've largely privatized the killing. Um, so it's very removed, very um, separate from the common experience. And back during the Vietnam war, it, everybody was aware of what was happening and uh, involved, whether it was through the news media or actually knowing someone who is fighting or actually fighting themselves. So I think um, that's something to kind of keep in mind. Uh, although there was a big anti-Iraq war movement, it was definitely mostly civilians and people outside the military. And that's just really different from from the anti-war movement in the Vietnam War. Yeah, I mean, there definitely were plenty of people who spoke out against the war, Um you know, the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war who had served in it or lost someone to it. But I think in terms of scale, I mean, we're looking at a very different thing. Again, we're talking about incidents of desertion topping 500,000, half a million people during the Vietnam War. Uh, and I think you're right that the conscription thing has a huge role to play in that. Um, again, highly recommend this documentary. It's called Sir No Sir from 2005 by David Zeger. And you know, I do think about it, you know, every year, especially when we get to, quote unquote, Veterans Day. Often, you know, I talk more about World War One on that day, because it was originally Armistice Day. And that's another completely pointless war. But, um, you know, we're also approaching Memorial Day right now. And then there's, I guess, at some point, there was some sort of Vietnam Veterans Day, specifically for Vietnam veterans that sometimes gets mentioned. I don't know why. But, I usually try to talk about this documentary and those people who resisted um, because there is so much propaganda around this this war uh, and, you know, the alleged treatment of veterans, mostly stuff that was made up and didn't happen or happened to French troops 20 years earlier coming back from French Indochina, like just completely like random amalgamations. You get all the black flag propaganda stuff around those POW MIA flags, which is a thing from like the 90s that various conservative groups promoted everywhere. Um, so this is sort of a good, I think, antidote to some of those propaganda narratives around it. Um, anyway, thank you, Rachel, for uh, watching this documentary uh, and, and coming on to talk about it with me. Yeah, it was definitely a worthwhile experience.